welcome to the latest episode of YASP's podcast, Reach In, Reach Out. I'm delighted we've got two fantastic guests joining us today. Um, and we've, we've got obviously sharing a few different time zones today, this morning or this evening. So I've got Bronwyn Edwards and Bronwyn will introduce herself in a second, who's uh, with us from Australia. And we've got Vita Postavan and Vita is joining us also in Europe from Slovenia. So welcome, Bronwyn and Vita. Thank you. Thanks, Rory. Great to be here. Okay, so maybe just kick off, Bronwyn, we'll start with you. Can you tell us a bit about who you are, your sort of experience of suicide and postvention? Because the focus of today's podcast is really going to be around postvention. What is postvention? How has it sort of grown over the years and sort of our aspirations and hopes for the future? So in that context, it'd be great if you could tell us a bit about who you are and sort of the, and your role and what and what you do, Roman. Yeah, thanks, Rory. Yeah, so I'm a, a person who's bereaved by suicide first and foremost. So the reason I'm even working in suicide prevention is because I, I lost my brother Mark back in 2008. So I founded an organization called Roses in the Ocean. We're the national lived experience organization in Australia. And, and so we've had the privilege for the last 12 years of walking alongside people who have a lived experience. And and many of those people have been people who are bereaved through suicide. So, you know, the reason we got involved was that way back when suicide came into our lives, not only did we find there was really nothing in the country that was particularly helpful for my brother when he needed it, but after we lost him, there was absolutely no support whatsoever that found my family or that my family found or our friends or his friends and what have you. So there was an enormous gap. So both of those areas, I guess, were the motivation for for me to start an organisation so that we could actually really start listening to the people who knew what it was like. And in this case, that's about listening to people who know what it's like to have someone they love gone from their lives forever and having to somehow try to navigate from the first second that you find that out through the rest of your life, really, and the different needs of people are at all those different stages. So, yeah, well, that's, that's why we got involved. Yeah, no, I mean, it's remarkable work that, that you do. And obviously, I'm very familiar with the work that Roses and the Ocean do. But maybe talk about sort of in detail in, in a few minutes, maybe in terms of the actual the, what you're doing on the ground now. But where did, where did the name Roses and the Ocean come from? When my brother died, my children were only really tiny. They were three and five and they had spent, you know, all of their lives really and until we lost him knowing that Uncle Mark was sad and Uncle Mark was struggling. And it was really important to us that little kids didn't associate that if you were sad, you died. So it's all about those age-appropriate conversations, which, of course, is an incredibly important aspect of postvention in in terms of helping families manage those conversations but for us at three and five we wanted to have a really nice way for them to say farewell to their uncle mark and his best mate hadn't been able to come out from peru because of visa issues until a couple of weeks after the funeral so we went to his favorite beach in coolum on the sunshine coast and we we took roses and we literally speaking in talk for little kids we said you know It's really important that if you're sad or things are tough that you reach out and ask for help and speak to someone. And it's really important that if you see a friend struggling the same way that that you reach out to them. And this rose is a symbol of being able to reach out 
and reach into people, literally, you know, the topic of your podcast series. So we sort of said, look, all the animals are going to be so happy in the ocean when they find your roses and the kids threw their roses in and a beautiful sea turtle surfaced when my son placed his rose in the ocean and we had a whale breach just offshore. And it was just an incredibly moving and therapeutic process for a family unit. It was my 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 mum, my dad, my dad's second family, my family. It was just people who've been through this know how absolutely exhausting and devastating the process is and you you get yourself through the funeral and then you tend to fall apart. So to come together at that two-week period, be able to do that, swim in the ocean, be in a place that was his place was very important for us to do as a family. But it became a thing that we did and hence where the name came when I decided to start the organisation. No, that's a a lovely, really poignant story. I often did wonder where the the name came from. Actually, it reminds me of in Scotland here, like many other places, we have an annual darkness into the light walk and it's organised in Scotland by an organisation, Chris's House, who the founder lost her, her son to suicide. And they run a male crisis suicide crisis service but what but in the annual walk what we all do is they provide roses and it's not quite in the ocean it's in the river Clyde which is not as glamorous but it's a really poignant when people as the lights ever arising as and just really just there is something really and just watching the roses float away it's really powerful really powerful so no thanks Rob. yeah so I'll come back. We'll come back to Roman uh, in a second, just when we into more detail and the work that your organisation does nationally. Because um, I know you're the peak body is always the term in Australia. I've never heard peak body used anywhere else. <laughs> we don't use the term for us either. <laughs> yeah, well, but but I often hear by colleagues, and I've heard your organisation described as the peak body for the work that you do. So moving on, uh, Vita. So Vita, I was saying what you do. We've known each other for many years. So maybe can you give us a bit about, for the, the listeners, uh, who you are and the work that you do, please? Yes. First of all, hello to everyone who is listening. I'm the Associate Professor here at the University of Primorska in Slovenia. And my story is uh, probably very different from what Brown uh, actually described. So I have joined Professor Andrei Marusic as a student, psychology student, when he was gathering you know, people who were interested in doing research in the field of suicide prevention. And at that point, I have to say that I was thinking like, I can I can focus my energy on prevention. That sounds kind of a manageable, but I would never be able to work in postvention or anything to do with the bereavement. That would be too difficult for me. And how wrong I was, <laughs> so to say. Because as life turns, I was starting my PhD with Andre when actually a year 2008 came. When I lost four family members, close family members, and I lost two of my PhD supervisors. So besides Andrei, I lost another supervisor. And I was very much confused in that year. What to do? Whether should I go on? Is that at least, I mean, is this my path, so to say? And there was Professor Onya Grat, who actually took over my mentorship later on. And it was actually a coincidence that she also suggested, well, because I was thinking about uh, what the topic of my PhD should actually focus on. And she was like, no, no, you should focus only on the bereaved people because uh, I had a model to develop, so to say. And so I was thinking, yes, I lost so many people in this very short time. Nobody of these died due to suicide, but it was all sudden deaths. 
And so it kind of felt like, okay, maybe this is a topic that I can look into it from both personal experience, so to say, but also from a little bit of an outsider, because it is still different uh, losing someone due to sudden death compared. Mm. So, yeah. Vita, I'm going to come back on to your research in a second. For those who won't know who Andre was, obviously, I knew him as well, and and it was such a sad, sad loss. Do you want to say a bit about Andre and and the, and the centre, which has now evolved into the, the Slovene Centre for Suicide Research? Yeah, Andre was uh, director of the Institute of Public Health at that time when I joined him, and he was a major force. I think he changed a lot of things uh, in terms of how the prevention in Slovenia should be you know, dealt with. So suicide prevention was his focus and suicide research was his focus, not so much bereavement or post-vention, so to say. But he was a psychiatrist. He was a psychiatrist and psychologist at the same time. So he had kind of a lot of competences, so to say, and he also had quite a strong network, so to say. He was recognized in the country and kind of a public figure, so to say. So therefore, I think he he had a major force in, in making changes. And we just tried to continue that after he passed away. But if the Slovene Centre has really gone from strength to strength under your being guidance and leadership. We tried. We tried to kind of, uh, you know, gather the energy that he left and then kind of uh, move on whatever way was meant for us to be, so to say. <laughs> okay, so sorry, going back then, I interrupted there, Vita. So, so then you're moving into then the bereavement space, obviously on the guidance of Onya Grad. And Onya Grad is very well-known figure in the bereavement, the suicide bereavement field. So, so do you want to take up your story from there again? Yeah, I mean, it was really like, at that time also, I have to say that there was not so much focus on the quality of research, in both in psychology, psychiatry, as well as uh, suicidology. And I think this was also one of the major shifts, because I, I said to myself, I don't want to just repeat another you know, quantitative study, so to say, but rather focus on what people were saying to me and trying to understand their stories and kind of make sense of their stories. And that felt also, I have to say, kind of in line with my personal view that, you know, whatever we do, I think the quality of this relationships or our work is really, really important. And that that is a lot of times also so healing for the bereaved people. Mm -hmm. And today we are doing some of the potential in our programs, but maybe we can talk about this a little bit later on. That's a good way to sort of segue into, we've, we've been using the term postvention, and some people may not know what, what that means or what so that the terminology. Who wants to kick off with sort of what we mean by postvention? Bronwyn, do you want to go back to you on that one? And you kick off, and then what we mean by sure. postvention. Yeah, of course. And I think you're right, Rory. I think anyone potentially anyone who's not in the suicide prevention sector won't really have a clue what postvention means. But my understanding, at least here in Australia, it's the support that's provided to people who have been bereaved by suicide. And I think it's also those who are impacted by suicide. And from a lived experience perspective there, they are two different things. So it's those people who literally don't have someone coming home at night or they don't have someone sitting at their dinner table as opposed to other people who are really impacted by that death as well and they could be people who are have been you know professional supports for that people they could be someone who witnesses a suicide so there's a lot of people first responders but postvention seems to encapsulate just that support that needs to be wrapped around people following a death by suicide yeah and I think 
What's always strikes me is, well, in particular, when I read the in the UK, Sharon McDonald did the largest ever, to my understanding, the largest ever survey of people bereaved by suicide. And it was over was over seven thousand people. Now, even though it was hosted in the UK, I think it was it was a worldwide survey. And but what really struck me, I think it was worldwide. I think it was anyway. It might be wrong, but anyway, it was certainly beyond just England. Certainly, where Sharon is based. But what was really fascinating there, and it comes back to your point about who's impacted by suicide, is that most people who respond to that survey were not family members. Of course, they were a substantial proportion. But the largest group were friends. And I think sometimes uh, when we think about postvention, yet the, your immediate reaction is, of course, family members are going to be devastated. Mm-hmm. But again, it's that those ripples of suicide, of the death of suicide are so important. And in that context, just remember that really struck me when I read Sharon's report was looking at the wider impact of friends, school kids or friends mm-hmm. in the work context, colleagues and so on. And it, and, and and again, what was really one of the key messages was that, and it's the same in, in the UK as it is in Australia, as it is in Slovenia, is there's no consistent response to people who are bereaved by suicide. And I know in the UK, in Scotland, we're cont- currently trying to address that. And at the Scottish government level, we are now, we're, we're now in the midst of a pilot or a really dedic- a dedicated service for people who are bereaved by suicide, open to anybody, family members, friends. That's at the pilot stage, but our hope and aspiration is when we evaluate the pilot phase of the work, is that will be rolled out across the 32 regions of Scotland so that everybody gets the help and support that they need when they need it, and it's a consistent response. So then, Vita, just going back back to you in terms of, so what's the situation like in terms of postvention response in Slovenia? And again, I'll ask the same question of you, Brom, in terms of what actually happens on the ground in Australia. Yeah, thank you, Rory. I think this is a really important question because if you consider Slovenia being as one of the countries still having quite high suicide rate, it has been decreasing throughout the last two decades, but anyway, still quite above the world or EU average. We don't have any organized, really organized systemic uh, support for the bereaved people. And that is quite remarkable. And we are still thinking whether that has a lot to do with also the stigma uh, around this issue. So in a way, you know, there is a lot of suicide happening, but still this area being so stigmatized, not talked about, is, is something that probably comes together in not having this kind of a help available. There are specific, for example, NGOs that are offering support, such as the one that Onya Grad has founded, actually. And, for example, we are also having a program for now more than a decade uh, where we come to the schools and we deliver the briefing sessions uh, for the uh, classmates, for the friends, for the teachers and also for the parents. And sometimes that goes also beyond the parents of other kids, but also we offer specific support to the parents that are bereaved, so that have lost uh, their son or daughter. But this is this is all there is, actually, uh, in terms of organized help. But uh, maybe I just want to come back to what you were saying before, that it's also difficult to assess who and what are the numbers, because we have been talking in the 70s about the six people bereaved or wounded by suicide. But we know that this is a very conservative estimate. So the number can go far beyond 100 people that have been exposed, so to say, and, and their lives has been have been changed. So 
it's also this that that is making a little bit difficult to do proper intervention, so to say, because they're such a heterogeneous group of people that need support. No, absolutely. And, and obviously, the now famous, uh, widely cited study about Julie Carell. Now, it's always, you'd be really careful how you describe that because it's, it's 135 people potentially affected. That's uh, that Julie, when she did her survey study. But, and of course, the challenge then, of that 135 people, who will be potentially bereaved or needing support? And again, we don't know the answer to that question, except if you go back to the Sharon McDonald survey, I can't remember precisely the percentage, but it was a high percentage of people, even amongst friends, who felt that had a moderate or substantial impact on, on their well-being. So, I mean, absolutely, I think it would be, be great if we could do more work to try and quantify that better, to make a stronger case for governments and, and other organisations to deliver care. Because the challenge, and I'll go back to, to Bromman in a second, but certainly in the UK context is, that with the exception of the Scottish thing I've just been talking about, too often we're, we're reliant on services, brilliant third sector or NGO services who do amazing work. But they're in, in terms of their funding and support, it's often from fundraising or precarious lines of support and fund, funding. There's no, no no statutory service per se. Now, that's what we're trying to change in Scotland. And I know other, other countries do things differently, but there's not enough of statutory response. So, Broman, maybe that nicely sort of brings it back to the work that, that you're involved in and, and know what's going on in Australia. Do you want to tell us a bit about, about the bereavement support in, in Australia? Yes. Yeah, so. There's been there's been a level of uh, postvention support in Australia for quite some time through an organisation called Standby or a program called Standby, but in recent years it's starting to get more attention. So there has been still massive gaps where you know when we're in community all the time working with people with lived experience and many of them bereaved by suicide, so many still say they they get no support. They just you know slip through the cracks. However, the federal government has got behind and provided a couple of things. They provided standby with with funding to have a national footprint. So that's improving things. And but we're actually in the middle right now of doing universal co-design for universal postvention amongst a couple of other services as well, looking at how do we make sure that everyone who's bereaved by suicide does get connected to support and really quickly. Some of the later co-design that's been done just in the last two years or so was an enhanced model for the standby model. So essentially it's very grassroots. It's about first responders or coroners or people trying to connect them with that service really quickly such that they can have face-to-face support or phone support and what have you, a service that they can come in and out of at any point in time no matter what the period of time is. And if someone is missed, they can still reach out to standby five years later. But the enhancement was actually involving some specialist grief counselling, so a recognition that your normal grief counselling wasn't actually meeting the needs of people bereaved by suicide. They really needed to have grief counsellors who understood the complexity of suicide grief or bereavement grief, suicide bereavement grief, and also the addition of people with lived experience of suicide bereavement coming into peer support roles. So that model's been trialled in, in one of our states and that's the model that's being looked at now for a national expansion. And then there's all wonderful little grassroots community responses, you know, where whole communities come together and 
when some someone takes their life, they rally and all sorts of services are wrapped around people because it's all those practical things as well. It's it's picking kids up from school and cooking meals and coming in and helping clean at someone's house when they just can't get out of bed. <laughs> so it's it's really nice when you see those local community efforts, but it's not everywhere. And, and I think we're really light on as well in terms of bereavement support groups. So for some people, that suits them. For many, that's not their cup of tea. But we don't have a lot of bereavement support groups in in the country yet either. Mm-hmm. So it's still a bit of piecemeal, but they're trying to connect all the dots and, and get that that network more broadly right across the country. Well, and no, I think it is. You can see it as month month on month, year on year. Globally, you can see there is much more focus on postvention, which is great. But still, mm-hmm. there's a long journey ahead. Uh, can I sort of rewind a second, Vita? Um, because what I suppose we didn't quite cover at the start was, and you mentioned that we talked about even just your own experiences of, being, of two sudden deaths uh, early on in your career. But maybe can we say a bit about the impact of being bereaved by suicide? Because we know it is different from all the forms of bereavement. So, maybe, Vita, it'd be just really helpful if you could say a bit about that. Yeah, that's a complex question, actually. <laughs> and it could probably follow uh, an hour of a conversation. But in brief, I think what is really different is this constant asking of yourself, what have I missed? Could have I done it something differently? And why suicide has happened? Besides, of course, the enormous pain, the feelings of, uh, you know, losing someone, being sad, angry, and all complexity. It's really different also how this journey of suicidal person has been because you know there are cases where suicide surprises everyone in the family i mean it has never occurred any suicide attempt before so you know losing someone due to suicide is really like out of the blue but there are cases i remember from my uh from my own phd research that you know suicide attempts have been happening for example with one person for 30 years and the whole family was trying to kind of uh, prevent it for 30 years this was a story of this one daughter that i remember and then her father died eventually due to suicide and she actually also felt a little bit of a relief because you know after 30 years of taking care of him that was the end result so to say that the story ended so or kind of a history and so it's it's really complex in that sense because it really depends on what was happening even before the suicide happened but mainly i would say that the feelings differed also in terms of you know feeling guilty about uh whether i could prevent have i actually done something that kind of a uh, contributed to the development of suicidal thoughts and this is very difficult to address even with within the grief work so I think one of the very valuable things that suicide survivors often say is that, you know, when they can share this with other survivors, this is helpful. So they're under, they feel understood in that manner. No, absolutely. And I suppose in addition to that, what I think, I can't remember who mentioned it earlier, but obviously the rule is still a stigma, which is which often isn't associated with other causes of death. And we still sadly have people who both in real terms and metaphorically cross the road from somebody who's been bereaved by suicide and oftentimes it's not because it's it's not because they're they want to avoid the person for ill reasons it's because they maybe often don't know what they say to somebody who's bereaved by suicide and I know from some of the research and also my experience of being bereaved and also speaking to many other people who've been bereaved by suicide is that that as long as you interact in a in a non-judgmental way and 
just be there for the person and recognize, be alongside the person in their in their distress or in their pain and bereavement. You're unlikely to do any harm. You're only just be there and recognize it. Uh, I suppose it, uh, as you say, Vita, it's complex and every bereavement is unique, although there are some common patterns. And I suppose the one thing, the one thing which is predictable about bereavement by suicide is, is its unpredictability. And um, and again, but it's just really encourage people to, if you are, if you know somebody who's been bereaved by suicide, please do reach out. And again, this compassion is at the heart of everything. You won't say the wrong thing. Um, yeah. Let me just think with you, Vita, and I'm going to head back to Bronman for a slightly different question. But Bronman touched on the sort of what's going on in some examples in in, in Australia. But Vita, be useful maybe to say something about the evidence base of what we think is effective or works in terms of postvention interventions. Can you say a little bit about that, please? Yes, I can say a little bit. I'm not sure we have too many of very, very high quality research data available, so to say. But in the recent years, we had a few of our review studies that, for example, looked into the different interventions or support that are available. For example, peer support groups and online support groups. And most of these review studies have actually shown that this kind of support is effective is recognized as you know beneficial by the people who are using uh, especially from what we have talked before so being understood being able to share their own experience we have a, a few small studies for example showing that mindfulness based interventions they improve post traumatic growth for example and are and are also appropriate for this kind of interventions but to be really uh, able to say that we have you know this kind of a uh, model of interventions that works for all. Of course, I think this is also not realistic because you know we are we'll all be facing death and bereavement processes, and it's it's really hard to design something that would fit all, as Bone mentioned earlier. Yeah, but I suppose I, I, your central point is really well made. Is that although in the last ten or fifteen years there has been progress in growing the evidence base, still we don't really know what the definitive intervention is in terms of supporting people who are brief. And part of that, I suppose, is, as you mentioned already, Vita, is a heterogeneity in, in terms of people who are affected. So, Broman, go back to you then, thinking more strategically or at a sort of policy level. I know you, you've been heavily involved in Australia at that level in terms of both delivering work on the ground, but also influencing policy and practice, I suppose, so have you any sort of, from your experiences of what, if you're from another country and you're trying to really ensure that policymakers take post-vention seriously, I suppose, have you any advice or what you've learned about what we can be doing more to try and ensure that post-vention does get prioritised at a government level? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's it's the centre of, of who we are. It's the heart and soul. It's like, what's actually changing policy here is actually people with lived experience. So if you're wanting to influence what happens in postvention, you need to be putting people who've been bereaved by suicide front and centre because we actually we actually know an awful lot from the lived experience perspective of what people need when they're bereaved by suicide. We understand the complexity. We understand that suicide bereavement in one in one family unit, friendship group, it will be experienced in a multiple of ways with the one person who dies. 
and that these people your needs as a bereaved person actually change as you find your way through life as well so you can still be being significantly impacted through your suicide bereavement at significant periods of your life when when people get married when when something goes wrong in your life when when a natural disaster hits when all these sorts of things it it just brings to the surface your bereavement again and people are really starting to articulate very clearly the type of support that they're looking for at these different stages and definitely needing to be able to tap in and out of it. So in terms of influencing policy and, and actual design of services, it has to be led by people who've been bereaved by suicide. It is the only way to get it right. So it's got to be this collaboration with researchers and government and, and service providers. It so it's it it's you know it's not rocket science. We all know it's not rocket science. But what is really important is that the appropriate amount of time is actually provided to do that well and to get that real diversity of voices that you need. Because it is a it's a it's a suite of support that people need. Some people want to read stuff because they don't want to. They'll never go to a support group. Others want a support group. We have people ring our lived experience warm line because they just want to connect and talk to someone else who has been in similar, you know, situations. So it's this whole myriad of options. There's no one size fits all. Yeah. No, I, I mean, and actually what just struck me when you were speaking there is one point we haven't made yet, actually, is that although, of course, it's really important that we support people who are bereaved by suicide because they're experiencing uh, incredible pain, and need support, but also it's recognizing that from a statistical point of view, sadly, the people who are bereaved by suicide are at increased risk of suicide. So it's both the right thing to do, but it also is potentially, of course, life-saving. That's really, really mm-hmm. vital. Okay, we'll give just a couple of last questions for both of you, and then we'll try and we'll bring it, we'll wrap it up and bring it to, to a close. So if being practical, so it's always good to have some practical information to give. So sort of Circling back to some points I was I was discussing earlier about sort of stigma, which is still there with regard to bereavement by suicide. But maybe just I mean, each of you can give you a very sort of some key pieces of advice. If somebody is what is wanting to reach out to somebody who's bereaved by suicide, like what what would your sort of key tips be? What would you advise them to do? Maybe start with Vita and then do Bronwyn. Yeah, first of all, maybe Rory, it depends on the relationships that we have before, because if I was never in touch with the person, then probably I would reach out in a different way. But today, with a lot of means of communications, I can reach out with a message saying just, you know, if you need me, I'm here. But maybe being also a little bit more direct, you know, offering a space and place where we can talk. And probably you don't need to be very wise in terms of what to say, which words to use. Maybe my experience is just to ask what has happened and then leave the silence and then people start to open up. This has usually worked out uh, with the bereaved people because we need they need to speak. Um, and then, of course, what you have mentioned, being very compassionate, being very uh, gentle in how to lead the conversation. A lot of times we might experience that, you know, these conversations, they don't, if we give advice, people are not ready at some points to to take our advices, even though we mean, you know, by, by our mess, messages, but it's not, you know, at some points in their lives when the suffering is too hard, I think we have to let it go and just be with the people with their suffering. And I suppose one is one uh, really, really helpful advice, Vita, but one in terms of what you should do, but what you shouldn't do, the only one I would suppose I would add is 
try not to tell somebody how they should be feeling because obviously none of us be, can be in the mind of somebody else. So, Bronwyn, same same question for you. Any sort of key pieces of advice for people reaching out? Yeah, look, absolutely agree with everything you've said, Peter. I guess I'd I'd add on to that is that no judgment in terms of how long this takes. I remember someone saying to me, oh, it's been 12 weeks. Really? You're still upset? And you're like, really? You don't? (laughs) Just clueless. So try not to be clueless. No, but in terms of, you know, constructive advice, I think it is, it is being there. It's, it's just being, having the humility to say, I have no idea what to say to you, but I'm here for you. It's stepping forward and just doing things that are helpful because it's just the most simple practical things at that initial time are, are really hard. So just being there to support and not walking away. But it is being there for the long haul. And the greatest support I've had from my closest friends are the ones when they would just sit with you in silence for hours or you could ring them at midnight and sit on the phone and cry for an hour and they were just there. Yeah. And that's all you need. And being able, if the person wants to, being able and, and happy to talk about the person that they love that's no longer there because it's really some people really need that and they, they want to keep that person alive and, and just help navigate them what it looks like when they try and put their world back together again. Yeah, no, really fantastic. Um, that sort of safe space idea. No, really great great advice from both of you. So just as we sort of bring things to a close and trying to I've got one substantive question and I've got a sort of unrelated question just to bring it to to very very end is and I'll go back to Vita for, and I'll ask the same problem as well is so looking over the next 10 years because I'm going to ask you to look backwards in a second Vita but for looking to the future of the next 10 years what do you hope what do you see as a sort of in terms of postvention where do you hope it goes or what are your aspirations well, I'll start with the next three months and then I'll add uh, <laughs> years to that. Because as you know, we are organizing world, the yes, Congress, the World Congress in Piran in September. And for the first time, I think for Slovenia, we are organizing a community day that will focus also on the bereaved people. And my hope is that this could kind of a you know be a starting point for us in Slovenia for some networking for some organization that might actually develop from there whatever whatever way it will be it will be great because i think this is a kind of a unique opportunity for us so hopefully in 10 years you know out of this maybe event or also other things we can develop some strong alliances and what bone was saying you know having someone stepping forward as suicide survivor also in slovenia would make a big difference so far i think the shame around this is still so strong that even though i have talks with survivors for years now no one really dared to put the energy or their efforts in 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 that manner so this is still a difference between the countries i think and it helps it helps to have also a community international community in that way to support people Great. Well, that's really helpful and great aspiration. Bronwyn, same question for you. I would really, I would really hope that in less than 10 years we have a situation where whenever someone is bereaved by suicide, basically the, the person who who even advises them that this has happened, or the very first touch point that those people know where services exist and they can warmly connect them in so that everyone is provided access and choices, I guess, and options of the type of support that's going to be suitable for them that they can choose. So it's, I really would love the fact that no one actually 
goes through this without even knowing that there's some support available out there in some form. So I think that accessibility, that suitability sort of aspects for here in Australia, where I realise we're very lucky and, and there's things happening here that aren't happening in some countries yet. But for us here, it's about that greater accessibility for people and making sure that they're not slipping away without, you know, getting that support. Yeah, well, I really, I really hope that that hope is realised. And and again, I think you just touched on a really important point, Bromman. We're speaking here as talking about the patchy accessibility of services in high-income countries, and it's even more patchy and in many cases non-existent in low and middle-income low and middle-income countries. So, globally, given we know that the vast burden of suicide is in low and middle-income countries, almost eighty percent of all suicides. So that really highlights that we do we are of a really long journey ahead. I think the the greatest army of people we have to provide support are, are ourselves in community. So the more we build the capacity of our own communities to understand suicide, understand suicide bereavement, not to judge it and know actually how to reach into their neighbours, then that's where you'll get that universal support. And once again, that's much easier said than done in, and, and more so in other countries. But I don't think we should ever underestimate the power of community to actually wrap around people in, in suicide bereavement situations. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Okay, so we'll just try and bring it to a, a, a close now. And so I've just got one very brief unrelated question, but it's always a nice way to end the podcast. So I'll stick with you, Bronwyn, and just ask, so reflecting on, on your life to date, what advice would you give your 16-year-old self? There's going to be two parts to my answer, Rory. I would look back and say, take some time off after school and go and explore the world because then you'll really work out what you might like to do because I certainly went into a path that was not really where I probably would have wanted to do. But having said all of that, I don't think anything would have changed because when suicide came in and I lost my brother, that completely and utterly turned life upside down and completely changed the trajectory of my life. So I think suicide's one of those things, unfortunately, that no matter what I'd done as a 16-year-old, this has happened in my life and and it would have changed whatever I was doing anyway. So the power of it is remarkable. And Vita, the same question for you. What advice would you give your 16-year-old self? First of all, Rory, I have to say this is the hardest question because yeah, I know. <laughs> Not sure what I'll say, but maybe I was thinking, reflecting now that I would I would definitely say to myself to do to dare to do things your way or my way, whatever that was. Yeah. When I was 16, I was still trying very much to fit in, uh, trying to, you know, kind of fit in and at the same time trying to find my own way, as probably all teenagers do. And also, you know, now having the experience of both losing people, having people by my side. I would also say that, you know, time heals most of the wounds, but some stay, some will be there and will be a rem- also a reminder that, you know, we are all vulnerable. We all need to take care of ourselves. So maybe something in that line, but I'm not sure I was very clever to give myself good advice. I guess I guess, I guess good advice. And just recognizing this, I suppose, is in a way we are our wounds and re- recovery to a greater or lesser extent or how we respond to those wounds and that makes us who we are I suppose so but I think the other bit about fitting in I think it's so true for 
so many adolescents. So I think it's really, really helpful advice. Okay, so a huge thanks on behalf of YAS for taking the time, Vita and Broman for joining me today for the latest episode of our podcast. And again, there's lots of material online, both for the Slovene Centre for Suicide Research and for Roses in the Ocean. For our listeners, just Google those and you'll find them online. And have a great day. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining me.